You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast for audiobook fans made by audiobook people like me, Andrew Caberline. Hello, audiobook fans. We hope the new year is treating you well. We hope the resolutions are still going and that you're not already fed up with 2019. Speaking of fed up, how's that for a segue? Our guest this week on the podcast is Gemma Hartley, the author of Fed Up, Emotional Labor, Women, and the Way Forward. Gemma Hartley is a writer, reporter, and an author. In September 2017, Gemma wrote an article that went viral titled, Women Aren't Nags, We're Just Fed Up. That article was viewed by over 2 billion people, billion with a B, and gave voice to the frustration and anger of countless women, breaking the dam on the conversation around emotional labor. Fed Up continues where the article left off, expanding on the role and impact of emotional labor in our lives. Fed Up is on sale now. Gemma sat down with Anna Maria Alessi and talked about what she wants the book to accomplish on a national level, why the reach of her article surprised her, the difference between how boys and girls are rewarded for empathy, and more. Allow me now to turn over hosting duties to Anna Maria. And be sure to stay tuned after their conversation to hear an excerpt from the Fed Up audiobook. Welcome, Gemma. Thank you for having me here. So I often say that our role as publishers is to start national conversations. I think that if we do our jobs well, that's what we do. And I believe we're on the brink of starting a very interesting conversation with the publication of your book. So tell us, what would you like the conversation to be about? So I would like the conversation about emotional labor to really move us forward. That's what I want the book to do, is to open up this conversation on what do we do with all of this information? What do we do with all of these frustrations? How do we really find a way to make room for balance in our lives? How do we value this work? And I think there are so many components to this book that it's hard to focus on one specific thing that I want it to do. But I want us to talk about how we value emotional labor in our society and in our homes and in our personal lives and then find a way to make it work for us. So tell us what you mean when you talk about emotional labor. What is it? So when I'm talking about emotional labor, I'm talking about the unpaid usually unnoticed work that mostly women do to keep everyone around them comfortable and happy. And this usually comes at the expense of our time, our mental space, and our emotional energy. And talk to us about sort of the etymology of this book because it's related to a magazine article that you wrote on this subject and the reaction to that article. Yes, so the genesis of this book was really when I wrote this article for Harper's Bazaar titled Women Aren't Nags, We're Just Fed Up. And it sparked a huge conversation. I thought when I was writing this article that it would speak to people who were very much like me, people that were stay-at-home mothers, people who worked from home and were shouldering all of this emotional labor because, you know, they're the ones in the home all day. This makes sense for them to do in a way, even though it's not right and it's not equal. It didn't seem like something that would have a really broad reach. And then when the article came out, I realized that was not true at all. It had a huge reach. It was across generations. It was very interesting to see how many people related to it and why they related to it. Um, There 
there are so many examples, I think, of emotional labor that it's a very universal experience. In the article, you talk about even having the conversation with your spouse about a particular incident was emotional labor into of it, unto itself because you had to be so conscious of the words that you were selecting and the response that you expected from him. And you you talk about how a key component to emotional labor is the person, and usually the, it's a woman, trying to make everyone comfortable and, and all of the complexities that go around that. And where do you, where do you think, where has your research told you this comes from? So my research basically tells me that this has been going on forever. And women have always been expected to fill this role where we're taking care of others. And that has translated into this really big inequality in this invisible work that we do. We're expected to do emotional labor just by virtue of being women. It's supposedly built into our personalities that we are naturally, you know, more empathetic, more caring, more attuned to the details of everyone's lives. But we're really conditioned to do that because we see women doing this work all the time and men are not subject to that same expectation. So it's a very deep divide in not only the understanding of emotional labor, but also, you know, the reality of emotional labor. I like it when you talk about empathy. One thing that I I think about, or I thought about a lot about when I was raising my kids was practicing empathy. Do you think that young girls are asked and expected to practice empathy at an earlier age and are rewarded for practicing empathy in a way that boys aren't? Yes, I absolutely think that there is a deep cultural conditioning where girls are really praised for being nice. They are praised for making other people comfortable. And boys, when they are going against that and, you know, being tough, being unaware of everyone around them, they're showing leadership qualities. They're, you know, forging their own path. And that is not encouraged in little girls in the same way. Little girls get the, you know, expectation that they should be nice to everyone. They should be really communal. There is this very big expectation linked to emotional labor about women being communal beings, uh, whereas mm-hmm. the lone wolf is more oh, the, okay. ma- the masculine right. expectation. Why has it taken us so long to throw off this gender stereotype when we've thrown off so many others? And that, I think, is really interesting because particularly in the recent past, we've thrown off things. We've just gotten really smart about it and said, no, I'm not taking that anymore. I'm not living up to that expectation because it's a false one. But this one really has stuck and nobody's yet talking about it. Why do you think that is? Yeah, and I've I've talked about this a lot. I think that it's very sticky. Emotional labor is very sticky because it's invisible. While we're at home the division of labor can look very equal. But the person who is tasked with all of the mental work that goes into making that happen, it's not something that we see on the surface. So it's not something that we're like, look at this. This needs to change because you can't see it on the surface. You have to really dig into it and have a deep understanding of emotional labor in order to even start having that conversation about undoing these 
deeply held gender roles. It's all of those lists that are running through all of our minds at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. It's did I schedule the dentist? Did I, you know, are they do they have clean, you know, clothing for practice and and all of that stuff, right? Yes. And I I have been recently dealing with this with school registration for the kids. And I thought to myself the other day as I was doing it, if I didn't do this, these kids just wouldn't get registered for school. <laughs> like that just wouldn't happen. It's all of those details that you know all under all under your jurisdiction. It's your job to make the appointments, to book the summer camps, to make sure everyone has clean laundry, to know what we're having for dinner tonight. There are so many things that we're constantly running through in our mind. And you also talk about, as part of the solution to this, that women should try to give up this idea of perfectionism. So perfectionism and its relation to emotional labor is that perfectionism, the way it's sold to us today— really tells us that if we strive to do a little bit better, if we organize a little bit better, if we can anticipate needs in a more streamlined way, that it's going to take some of the emotional labor off of us. And it never delivers on that promise. It just puts more emotional labor on our plates. So we need to really try and reject this you know, perfectionism that we've been taught to seek because it's not going to make our lives easier or better it's just going to put more work on us. And I think letting go of perfectionism will also help our partners be able to balance this out with us. Because if our standard is perfection, it's going to be really hard for anyone else to live up to that standard. And they're going to give up. So in order to have any real compromise, in order to make any progress, perfection really does have to go. So in addition to researching and writing the book, you have tried to sort of walk the walk in your relationship with your husband. So tell us a little bit about what what has been the most surprising aspect of that effort. The most surprising thing was that when my husband started taking on a larger share of the emotional labor in our relationship, I knew it was going to make my life better, but he seemed a lot happier as soon as he started taking on emotional labor and feeling confident in it. And being connected to his life in this new way really opened up a whole new world for him. He started redefining what masculinity meant to him. He started coming more fully into the human experience, I think, and redefined what determined his self-worth because he was no longer showing up to a life that I was managing for him. He was really in control, responsible for his emotional labor, and it helped him connect with his life. And I think that is one of the big valuable parts of emotional labor is that it connects us to our lives in this very, very cool way. And I don't think that we often see that because we are so caught up in doing everyone's emotional labor that we don't get the reward anymore. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important part to, to talk about how beneficial it can be in smaller bites. If, if you're overwhelmed by it and you're asked to take on too much, it's like anything else that you're asked to take on too much of. But I think particularly when we think about raising our sons to sort of remember that part, like this is, this is going to have a huge benefit to you once you exercise this muscle, right? Yes, it absolutely does. And my husband is really seeing that in his own life. He's a lot happier and more fulfilled in all areas of his life, whereas before, I think a lot of his self-worth hinged on his job and how he performed in his job because that's traditionally where we tell boys that 
that's your self-worth. That's where it comes from. Whereas we really condition women to get their self-worth from being communal and caring for others. And there is, I think, a little bit more of a full experience for women when they are taking on a reasonable amount of emotional labor instead of taking it on for everyone. And I think for men too, it gives them a more well-rounded life and more connection to their life than yeah, they I would mean, otherwise have. Yeah, I'm practicing empathy and and doing that, obviously, for your most immediate loved ones. That's beneficial and that's rewarding. It's, it's like you said, it's just, and, and there's plenty of room for all of us to get involved, right? Yes, this there's idea plenty that- of room for emotional labor. <laughs> Women can tell you just how much opportunity there is for for men to come in and take yeah. some of it on and really, you know, experience the benefits because it's not like we're trying to unload everything onto men. We just need better balance for everyone to be doing their share and it really does benefit everyone. And have you seen, uh, like, so you're, you're a test case, you're probably the most educated person in the country right now in this subject matter. Have you seen your friends? Do, I mean, and I'd also like to ask you sort of what kind of information you share in the book to get to this better balanced place. So do you have, is it prescriptive? Is it just, is it anecdotal? Like, what can we expect in terms of that input from you as the expert? So a lot of this is anecdotal. It sort of goes through how we trial and errored our way into a better balance of emotional labor. But by the end of the book, I do have a much stronger grasp on what sort of things contributed to us being mm. able to reach this place okay. of equity. So I'm talking about how to have that conversation and get past that defensiveness where the emotional labor becomes really heavy trying to explain this. I think having this deeper understanding of it is really going to help us have those conversations and making the conversation broader and more cultural will make it feel like less of an attack. And I think that's critical. I think that's the critical component, yeah, right? It really is. Just want um, to say we're all talking about yeah, this and it's yeah. no it's nothing personal. Yeah. It's just we it's an observation that we're now better educated about. And let's use the knowledge that's out there to better this whole family unit. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I talked to my husband about was it's not it's not playing a blame game. Like, I am not saying it is your fault that we have this imbalance. It is our culture's fault that we have this imbalance. You know, he did not set out to put me in this corner yeah, where yeah. all of the emotional labor is on me. He didn't mean to do that, and I didn't mean for it to happen, but it has happened, and now we we know better, we can do better. We know better, we can do better. So it starts as a magazine article. Is this your first book? Yes, this is my first book. Oh my gosh. So now, how did it how did it turn into a book? Did did someone approach you and say, "I I think you should make this into a book," or did you write a book proposal and, and find an agent and go from there? So after the Harper's article started gaining a lot of traction online, do you know how I, many times it's been um, shared or, or read? Uh, nine hundred and sixty-two thousand something. Nine hundred and sixty-two thousand shares. Share, so yeah, fantastic. The clicks are like in the billions. Oh my but, gosh. Uh, yeah, it's been shared nearly a million times, which it's a lot. That's a lot. All right, yeah. so now that's starting to just really bubble up. Yes, yeah, so that, you know, around the time that it hit half a million views, 
I started getting agents uh, contacting me, and I, you know, found my agent, John Moss, and he's amazing, and I just absolutely loved working with him from the very start, and um, we worked together to craft a book proposal. As soon as he asked me, like, could this be a book? I'm like, yes, let me tell you all the chapters in it. I know Perfect. this book already. Because you did. You had it all in it your was, head. It was all there. I had been mulling over this for such a long time. I had written that article shortly after Mother's Day, and it didn't publish until September. So I've spent all this time thinking about it and wondering, you know, how all of these pieces fit together. So by the time it came to publish the article and I was approached about a book, I was there. I was so ready to really delve into this issue and to figure it out for myself. It was a joy to, you know, be given free reign to research and really get into it. So how much time did you spend researching and writing? So I did not have a whole lot of time. I had six months uh, as the deadline oh to my write gosh. this book. That doesn't seem fair. Hello, no, Harper One. I, yes. No, I, um, I understand. But at the same time, it was one of these things where there were many points where I was like, I wish I had years. I wish I had like a decade to spend on this. Um, and I'm sure that I will be learning more and hearing more about it uh, after the book publishes. But... I'm I'm happy with the amount of research that went into it with all of the people who were so gracious to be interviewed in this book. And that was the bulk of your research, correct? It was yes. it was interviewing participants and just talking about it, correct? Or did you yes. have any did you cite studies or did you Yeah, I'm not there, sure. There are multiple studies cited throughout the book. There are lots of um books that I draw inspiration from and that I quote in the book. But the bulk of this research was really talking to women about emotional labor. And I also talked to men. I talked to same-sex couples. I really try to get a broad sense of how everyone is being affected by emotional labor. Um, but anecdotal evidence is a big part of this book because it's, it's not very something— strong. Yeah, and it's also not something that we have a lot of research on. I was able to take pieces here and there that connected to it, but the real research was, you know, getting out there and talking to women and understanding how it affected their lives. So tell us about the experience of writing a book versus the short-form nonfiction writing that you're experienced in. What, what, what was the biggest difference? Um, the biggest difference was learning to allow myself space to explore ideas more fully because I am so used to being like, okay, get this under 800 words. I felt when I published that Harper's article, I felt like I had all the room in the world because I had 2,000 words instead of, you know, the 1,500 I was originally given. And now I had a whole book and it was... It was very hard to change that mindset um, and say, okay, you can ask that next question. You can go a little bit more deeply into this subject. Uh, but it was also very rewarding, and I switched gears very quickly and enjoyed it. And I also think it made me a much faster freelance writer. because Interesting, because you had to juggle everything. Yeah. yeah, because I had to do it, do it all and do it fast. And, you know, that doesn't mean that I didn't take great care with creating this book, but I was 
I was used to sitting down and really, you know, going through these ideas and spending a lot of time with my butt in the seat writing for six months. And I think it's definitely helped me as a writer in all areas. What does it feel like to be published in addition to writing the book, to to be a part of the publishing process? How's that going so far? So far, it's very exciting. I was saying before I came out here to New York that I wasn't sure how I would do with it because my experience is I sit in a room and I write and I'm alone and I don't interact with anyone. Uh, So it's a very different experience uh, as a writer to be out with people and talking about the book in a very public way. But it's also very exciting and I've really been so excited about the whole process. I've really enjoyed all of the team that I have met And I've found that being in these meetings, um, being in front of people, talking to them about the book is something I really enjoy doing. I feel like it's what I do when I go out with my friends. We sit and we talk about this subject. And it's something that I could do all day, every day. It is my passion and I am happy to do it. Do you anticipate any opposing viewpoints or have, you know, in your experience, have you gotten opposing viewpoints in, in the course of your research and writing? And and do you have thoughts on, on what that might be and how you might, you know, respond to that? So as far as opposing viewpoints, there have not been a ton. When the article first came out, one of the big issues was that that, you know, personal essay turned reported article was not intersectional enough, which is a very fair point. But I think the book really addresses those issues that I was not able to fit into the article. And the other argument was that I don't believe you. This work doesn't exist. Oh. Yes. Uh, You can imagine online men's rights advocates, you know. Really, that is a viewpoint I am willing to dismiss. Completely, (laughs) because it's very obvious in the research that, and even in people's lived experiences, this work exists, and it's hard, and it's exhausting, and we need to talk about it. And I'm not going to sit online and fight about that. And if there are any other really relevant criticisms of the book, I'm very happy to hear them and engage with them. Um, That's pretty much the only one that I'm like, mm, I'm not going yeah, to go yeah, there. That, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That seems like a dead end. Yeah. And the, the only other argument I've heard has been taking issue with the term emotional labor because it was originally coined by Arlie Russell Hochschild and it related directly to service employees and the emotion management they did. And by the time my article came out, there was a lot of talk about emotional labor in these very different, broader terms, Mm. which has existed for, you know, a few years before me. And I decided to run with that term to broaden it. Um, And I think this is one of those cases where we can talk about that. We can say like, hey, I don't agree with your terminology, but I think the important thing is that we're talking about the issue. Yeah, which goes back to the very beginning. You know, the effort that you've made to start this conversation. And and the way that you believe that is the most critical component is we have to acknowledge it and talk about it and go from there. 
So I want to thank you so very much. It's a great book, and I wish you the best of luck. All right. Thank you so much. For Mother's Day, I asked for one thing. A house cleaning service. Bathrooms and floors, specifically. Windows, if the extra expense was reasonable. The gift, for me, was not so much the cleaning itself, but the fact that for once I would not be in charge of the household office work. I would not have to make calls, get multiple quotes, research and vet each service, arrange payment, and schedule the appointment. The real gift I wanted was to be relieved of the emotional labor of a single task that had been nagging at the back of my mind. The clean house would simply be a bonus. My husband waited for me to change my mind to an easier gift than house cleaning, something he could one-click order on Amazon. Disappointed by my unwavering desire, the day before Mother's Day, he called a single service, decided it was too expensive, and vowed to clean the bathrooms himself. He still gave me the choice, of course. He told me the high dollar amount for completing the cleaning services I requested, since I control the budget, and asked incredulously if I still wanted him to book it. What I wanted was for him to ask friends on Facebook for a recommendation. Call four or five more services, do the emotional labor I would have done if the job had fallen to me. I had wanted to hire out deep cleaning for a while, especially since my freelance work had picked up considerably. The reason I hadn't done it yet was part guilt over not doing my own housework and an even larger part of not wanting to deal with the work of hiring a service. I knew exactly how exhausting it was going to be. That's why I asked my husband to do it as a gift. Instead, I was gifted a necklace for Mother's Day while my husband stole away to deep clean the bathrooms, leaving me to care for our children as the rest of the house fell into total disarray. In his mind, he was doing what I had most wanted, giving me sparkling bathrooms without me having to do it myself. Which is why he was frustrated when I ungratefully passed by, not looking at his handiwork as I put away his shoes, shirt, and socks that had been left on the floor. I stumbled over the large Rubbermaid storage tub sitting in the middle of our closet. My husband had taken it down from a high shelf days before because it contained the gift bags and tissue paper necessary to wrap his mother's gift and mine. He had taken out what he needed, wrapped the gifts, and left the tub on the floor. An eyesore, an obstacle, and, at least for me, a source of endless ire. It impeded me every time I needed to toss clothes in the hamper or pick out something to wear. It was shoved, kicked, and rolled onto its side, but it wasn't put away. Mm. To put it back, I had to drag a kitchen chair into our closet so I could reach the shelf where it belonged. All you have to do is ask me to put it back, he said watching me struggle. It was obvious that the box was in the way and needed to be put back. It would have been easy for him to just reach up and put it away, but instead he had stepped around it, willfully ignoring it for two days. It was up to me to tell him that he should put away something he had taken out in the first place. That's the point, I said, now in tears. I don't want to have to ask. And therein lay the problem. It was a simple and obvious task that required minimal effort for him. So why hadn't he done it? 
Why did I always have to ask? It was a question that led to a tear-filled fight as I tried to get my husband to grasp why it is exhausting to be the household manager who notices problems, delegates solutions, and has to ask in a sing-song voice to get anyone to comply. How I find myself carrying all the domestic upkeep that relieves others of the mental load. I am the one who notices when things need to be done, and my options are limited. I either complete these tasks myself or delegate them out to others. If we are running low on milk, I put it on my grocery list or ask my husband to pick it up at the store, even if he was the one to use the last drop. I'm the one who notices when the bathroom or kitchen or bedroom needs to be cleaned, and my attention to all the details often makes one task turn into 20. I start taking socks to the laundry, then notice a toy that needs to be put away, which leads to tidying the playroom, and then a stray bowl needs to be put in the sink, so I do the dishes, and the cycle continues ad nauseum. Housework isn't the only thing that becomes a drag. I am also the schedule keeper who makes appointments and knows what is on the calendar at all times. I am the person who has all the answers to where my husband left his keys, what time that wedding is, and what type of dress code is necessary. Do we have any orange juice left? Where is that green sweater? When is so-and-so's birthday? And what are we having for dinner? I carry in my mind exhaustive lists of all types. Not because I want to, but because I know no one else will. No one else will read the school handbook. No one else will plan what to bring to our friend's potluck. No one else will lift a finger unless asked. Because that is the way it has always been. We hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, why not search Harper Audio Presents in whatever podcast app you're using and hit the subscribe button. Better yet, write a review while you're there. It would help us out a lot. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back soon with more forays into the wide world of audiobooks. <laughs>